Check out. Welcome to the NASCA Stop Child Abuse Now Black Talk Radio Show. NASCA is the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. My name is Victoria Kelly, and I am your host for this evening. Uh, we are on scan number 3234, and I'm excited to introduce you our special guest this evening. First, we have a single purpose at NASCA to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violent or physical abuse, emotional traumas, and with only two goals, educating the public, especially as related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, presenting facts showing child abuse to be a pandemic world problem affects everyone. Two, offering hope and healing through numerous paths, providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. Um, let's see. Again, we are on scan number 3234. And if you'd like to be a part of the panel this evening, please call 646-595-2118. And someone will meet you on the back line and ask if you'd like to ask a question or have anything to say. We'd love to have you join us and support our guests uh, tonight or any other night. And uh, our special uh, guest this evening is Monica Boglin from Methuel, uh, Washington, a survivor of sexual, physical, and emotional child abuse. Her predators were all family members, and her parents were intent on passing on to Monica the behavior that her parents had done to them. She also had lived with lupus since she was 29, painful autoimmune disease that has long been linked to adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. Monica became a life coach and therapist. Notes, I found a way to forgive the unforgivable and to firmly keep anyone in anything harmful out of my life um, has been linked to. She's earned her master's degree in metaphysical science and counseling and is well on her way to earning a PhD in the same field. Um, I hope, she says, I hope to further use my story the way to come observe and to help those along the path to their own healing because I know that hope and help is available. And these episodes we welcome various co-hosts and survivor professionals to assist in fielding questions 
endless variety of topics to justify a call and participants. Their trauma-informed perspective as survivor professionals will help them guide discussions on the issues of child abuse, trauma, and healthy human sexuality that springs from questions and topics brought to you by our listeners. Everyone is invited to engage on tonight's show. I am pleased to visit the mass.org website. Again, the um, call number is 646-595-2118. And uh, we'd love uh, to have you join us. So uh, without further ado, um, I'm going to open the mic. And we've got Monica. Welcome, Monica. Thanks so much again for having me on, and welcome to all in the NASCA family, um, either newcomers or veterans that have been a part of the community for a while now. I myself found NASCA actually during the pandemic. Um, I found myself um, still being able to focus without any issue on work and things of that nature, but I was at home for the better part of five months. Uh, teaching my courses and classes online uh, with a shorter uh, day for work. I found myself throughout the day or late in the evening um, still having, even during something as serious as a pandemic, still having those um, feelings and thoughts and emotions of uh, the abuse that I endured, I found them still kind of lingering more so than usual. So I found myself realizing that my busy work schedule was able to push a lot of those things to the back of my mind, and I didn't really have to deal with them as much. Um, but it also made me realize that if they're still there and still lingering, then there was still more work that I had to do for myself. So I just began a diligent search online to fit, find um, active people that were in groups or, um, you know, you have Facebook groups and things of that nature, but I found that it, it was just kind of a few little comments back and forth here and there. I didn't find people that were actually engaging and interacting with one another. And just miraculously after, you know, God hearing one of my prayers one day really saying that I need to, I can voice and state my opinions to myself and I can journal and I can and, and write about these things to myself um, when I'm having these memories or thoughts that come up. But I've got to start letting some of these things out, you know, and find an outlet for them. And miraculously, one day, just after a, a little bit of Google searching early in one morning, I found the NASCA group online. And I have not regretted it any one day since. So what I've oh, been able to do, yeah, and that's been about three years now for me. Um, what I've been able to do is call in enough and immerse myself enough with the resources that are online with NASCA, and I was eventually invited by Bill to actually uh, come in and to co-host one of the sessions every Thursday once a month. So that's what brought me here to NASCA. What I like to do when I do have the floor and I have the segment is to use this platform to let everyone know, male, female, trans, cis, whatever gender identification you, you go by, I am talking to you as a human being, that if you are an adult and you have survived any type of childhood trauma, And when I say surviving, meaning you are an adult now of some age over at least the age of 18, and you are still living and breathing. 
you are a survivor. You may not be completely where you want to be in your healing journey. You may not have been able to completely move beyond the physical boundaries or the environment of those that have abused you. And I will tell you, the emotional impact later down the road, as I see now, and I'll be 50 years old this year, is that the emotional impact will still be with you at some point in time in your life to where you will be able to have these thoughts and have these feelings, but they won't impact you so negatively as if they did, as if you were still that child going through the motions of being raped or molested, physically abused, put down, neglected, things of that nature. So I want to let you know that that is what I use this platform for, to let you know that the help and the healing that you seek, it starts with you. I am also sending out prayers and thoughtfulness and mindfulness to all of you that if you have not developed any type of coping skills, again, please use NASCA as a platform where we can speak with each other. There are written resources. There are other links that you can find there to teach you ways to find more positive coping skills because as a teacher of over 20 years, which is one reason I decided to kind of segue into counseling and initially looking at behavior development in adult students that I taught for years. I also thought that the crust of the behavior development was the emotional development. And in the sense that I saw negative behavior and negative emotions, it generally was triggered by some type of trauma or negativity in your psyche and somewhere within your childhood or your formative years. So if you have not developed any type of positive coping skills, please do yourself a favor. Identify some of the negative coping skills and know that nothing negative will turn out positive if you continue to do the negative things. So whether we're dealing with any type of addiction, drugs or alcohol, uh, addictions ourselves with sexual addictions, shopping addictions, um, anything of that nature, Please do yourself a favor. Find some other type of healing mechanism to counteract anything negative that you may be turning to at this point because when the feelings and the thoughts and emotions come up, you haven't developed a positive way to deal with them just yet. And that's what brings me to tonight's topic, and I call it our emotional toolkit. And what that means for me is I have been a survivor all of my life. Once I look back over the things that I've gone through and not just the abuse uh, through my life as a early, in my early childhood with family members and, and um, things of that nature. I survived a four-car crash uh, at the age of 19. I was diagnosed with lupus very early in, in life in my late 20s. Um, I am just now being released actually this week from the hospital dealing with a back surgery that's left me with uh, four titanium pins in my back and getting used to a new body and a new way of living and walking and, and getting used to just being a new bionic woman, you know, for lack of a better word. But I know without a doubt that I'm a survivor. And so that means that in order to survive so many of those things, somewhere along the line, I have had to have had an emotional chip implanted by the gods of the universe to switch on automatically when something negatively 
impacts my life. In order for me to not continue to go down that road of negativity or to chase that negativity, but to be able to focus on, okay, this thing has hurt me or this person has hurt me, but how do I rebound? How do I get better? How do I get stronger and how do I move on? And so before I begin segueing into professional counseling, I was already doing a lot of soul searching, researching and reading on everything from astrology, astronomy, um, emotional intelligence, uh, what we now call trauma-informed care is how basically how you take care of your own feelings or when you're counseling individuals, you have to be mindful of their feelings and so be more cognitive of the words you use and how you speak, the emotion in your voice when you're actually speaking those words out to another person, being respectful and mindful of the words that uh, they wish to use and that they want to be used, the names that they want to be called, the, even down to the pronouns that they want to be used. It's very important that we move through life and we become, and it's paramount that we become uh, aware, more aware of how our emotions drive us. And with that being said, you're going to have to learn to pack a toolkit because this thing called life is a battle day to day. And being a survivor of abuse just kind of impacts you even more. I means basically you've got a little more weight in your bag that you've got to carry through life with you. You know what I mean? So we've all got a little bit of baggage. Does it all have to weigh a thousand tons? It doesn't all have to be totally negative. But we all wake up every day learning something new or we've engaged in something different than what we did the day before. So think about the thousands of minutes and the hundreds of days in your life that you're going to live, and hopefully you do it in a positive way, where you now can be a part of the process where you're impacting the world and impacting people in a more positive way. And with that being said, keeping in mind that we are speaking from our point of view as survivors of adult trauma, I want us to put a couple of new things that you can take from a list of about four points that I have here and put them in your emotional toolkit, and you'll be able to learn to deal with the effects of the people, the places, or the things that have negatively impacted you in your life from past childhood trauma. But we've got to realize if you are not currently if you are, let me put this out right now, currently undergoing any type of violence or abuse in your life, please seek help right now. Call 911 right now if it's happening. You have to be able to do this for yourself. Make a plan to be able to move on with your life or a plan to uh, escape the environment and get away from the people that are hurting you. Because the reality is abusers are abusers. When they are not on the road to healing themselves, they will never do anything else but abuse in one way, shape, form, or another because they are not wired any other type of way. They are not seeking help so they can learn to rewire their brain. And unfortunately, the abuse that they still issue out, they don't think it's abuse because whoever abused them did the exact same thing to them. And it is, unfortunately, a generational cycle. But it is not up to you to change your abusers. It's up to you to change whether you allow them to continue to abuse you or not. And that is what I want you to be able to put into your emotional toolkit 
So when you have to fight the good fight, you're able to fight it but have the positive impact and the long-term lasting results that you seek, which is ultimately is going to help you get healed. All right, with that being said, the first point that I want to make about our emotional toolkit is to become and remain aware of your emotional and physical triggers. These could be any people, any places, or anything. I myself know that I have don't have anything that I allow around me that could be an emotional trigger. And as I said earlier, with people that develop um, certain coping skills, one show that I watch on TV is called My 600-Pound Life. I don't know if anyone has ever seen that show. It's on, I think, TLC or something, on TV or something like that. But the one undercurrent thing that I hear about people that are dealing with obesity issues is a lot of them turn to excessive eating because there is something going on with them emotionally that they never learned to deal with as a child. And Dr. Now, who is the host of that show, in later seasons, he's done a really great job of teaming people up with uh, counselors and therapists so they can get to the root cause of what the trigger was. And the trigger could be a plethora of things, but you hear about some type of abuse or trauma that's happened to them in their childhood, and they turn to eating, and before they knew it, excessive eating became an addiction. And here they are at 600 or 700 or 800 life-threatening pounds, and they're having to make sure that they can monitor their diet and exercise and try to do the years-long work, sometimes prior to the surgery before the doctor will approve it, do the years-long work to lose some weight before they're healthy enough to either undergo the surgery to continue to help them lose weight. So for some people, that's a trigger. That's what I mean by a trigger in certain things. So food could be a thing. And the reason you're excessively eating is because of the emotional uh, memories and the thoughts that keep coming up. When it comes to a place, mm-hmm. for me, the place was my hometown where I grew up. I made the decision about 15 years ago that I had literally become sick, literally. And with my disease of lupus, it's an autoimmune disease where your body at some point in time in your adolescent years, your autoimmune system was not being properly fed through your lymphatic system. So this is a lot of medical jargon, but this is what lupus is. It's in the family of sick of cell, things of that nature. So obesity can also be put into that family of autoimmune diseases or disorders. And what happened for me is being a kid and you're constantly on 10 because you don't know what day is the day you're going to get hit, what day is the day that you're going to get screamed at, what day is the day you're going to get thrown against the wall, what day you're going to get hit with a plastic baseball bat because you don't know who these parents are from day to day. They're your parents, and you're in your home, and you literally have no place else to go, so you think as a child, or you don't feel you have the power to call for help, and so you are constantly walking on eggshells, and so your body is constantly stressed, 
And so being constantly stressed, your body is not able to release more positive, um, healthy hormones in the body to help you grow. Physically, yes, but not in the areas where you need it, to where you can secrete certain hormones that help in the overall development of your body. And when a body is under that much stress for that many years, even when the stress is relieved a little bit, the body has adapted to being in that stressful environment, and it begins to attack itself. And that is how my issue of lupus came about. People would be another trigger. And those people were my family members who abused me. My father physically abused me. My mother uh, emotionally abused me, and I had an older brother who physically molested me. I was to the point to where I was in a family to where secrets and lies were the day-to-day norm. And as long as things were happening, but you didn't talk about them, everything was all good. I had parents who finally believed in getting up and going to work every day and earning a paycheck and paying their bills and taking care of their house and driving the best cars that they could in the neighborhood and and putting clothes on the backs of the kids that they were beating every day and showcasing them like we were a bunch of dolls to kind of hang out with and and show that we're we're dressed better than your kids. And we're taking this vacation this year so we can come back and brag about it. As long as they were doing the outside things that made you look like a family, you were, your life was threatened, literally, to talk about anything that was going on inside of those four walls of this so-called place you called a home. So those were all of my triggers. So I decided 15 years ago that my health was not worth any further deterioration because of these people and places that were making me sick. I decided to move about four hours away and took a teaching job um, at a directorial college. I was still in the same state, but I was farther enough away that it was enough that I knew that I didn't have these people just dropping by my house, involving me in their lives, constantly with the same crap, yelling and arguing about stuff that doesn't matter but never really talking about sitting down and spending time and talking about the truth of what we've all been through. And if you begin to speak that truth, then they felt you were ostracized. You were the black sheep of the family, and how dare you speak about this, and how dare you speak about that. But everyone at some point had been through something, but no one felt the need to speak on it and understand the purpose of what healing means. And one of the first steps is you just have to tell the truth about what you've gone through, not making up lies or making up instances of what happened. But if you were raped, you were raped. If someone molested you, they molested you. If your grandfather improperly touched you, he improperly touched you. And, yes, he could be a deacon in the church. That doesn't make he, mean he's not a, ch- a child molester. So that was the, one of the steps that I had to do for myself was to make a clear-cut decision to move away and once I was able to set that physical boundary it became a lot easier for me to start to put things into place of the emotional boundaries I realized that I could make it on my own I could be okay with new sets of friends and new people that I was getting to know and I could survive in a new environment and still work and pay my own bills but not be around the people the places or the things that were constantly triggering me So I'll open it up to um, 
any comments right there? Does anyone have anything to uh, add at this point? If you're on the line and you want to come in and um, comment, make sure to unmute your mic and uh, just jump in and comment. All right, so we have no comments there on that part. This is Victoria. Um, I'm opening uh, some people's mics here. Um, I yeah. I didn't realize that I had my mic muted, but my um, it's going crazy right now in my uh, my house. Uh, my female just went in heat, and my male is going crazy, and I'm trying to bite him. <laughs> I've got Dr. Nancy on, and she's helping me out. And I see that uh, Philip's hand is up, so I'm going to open his mic right now because he might have a comment. Okay. Awesome. Um, how old were you yeah. when you moved away from them? Hello? Hi, go ahead. This is Monica. Hi, Monica. How old were you when you moved away from your family? How old am I? How old My were age? You when you away from them? No, no how he's someone you, you moved, moved away from, from your family. Oh, that would put me at about... Um, Oh, around 28 or so, I believe. Late 20s. Okay. Late 20s, early 30s. I'll put it that way. Late 20s, early 30s, definitely. Yeah, I know for me, I had to do that uh, that distance thing, too, um, because I would go over, you know, to my family, and I would leave, and I would be physically ill. And, uh, yeah. I didn't realize. It took me a long time to realize it. And I wasn't raised by my mom because I called my mom up and got really sick. And I told my sponsor every time I call her, I get off the phone. I'm just sick and upset and all this. She goes, you know, you don't have to call her. And it was like, what a revelation. I don't have to call her. <laughs> you know? But that's because, that's because we had been in that situation where that was the only thing we knew how to do at that point. Yeah. And so I agree with you yeah. on that. I would have these feelings and I want to have these talks, but it's like we don't have to argue all the time, guys. I realized I was learning new skills, but they weren't. And why does us talking about um, I moved to, say, if I was still in the same city, but I moved to a new address, why is the fact that I put a change of address on mail or forwarding address and I've got to hear a 15-minute-long argumentative conversation from my mother because I still got mail coming to my house. Well, so what? I'll be by to get it when I can. Why are you in a fight with me about something that is out of my control? I realized because I wasn't physically in the home, that was the only way she felt she could still connect with me and control me and to get me physically to come to the house. In their mind, they thought that they were caregiving. As long as they knew where I was and they could see me or touch me and whatnot. And this was well after they knew that I was had developed lupus. I didn't know that it was triggered by childhood trauma at that point, no. But they did not know how to speak, talk respectfully. They still emotionally 
could not deal with you being a person that they couldn't control. And that's a huge issue with abusers. They're highly narcissistic. So once you're past that age where you're starting to talk and think and feel independently, they cannot, they don't have the skills to deal with you as a growing adult outside of them abusing you. They don't know how to interact with you in any other way other than to abuse you. So I was like you. Whenever I would leave the house, I just felt so filthy. I felt like I just walked through a literally a shitstorm. Pardon my language. And it was another one of those things, realizing they were physically making me sick. And I made this comment before about the late Dr. Maya Angelou, and she made a comment with the interview with Oprah once saying that words are things. So they could be positive or negative, and it's up to you how you interact with them. But once those words are spoken, especially negative and toxic words, and they get out into the environment, they crawl into your skin. They crawl into your clothes, which is why the home environment that these abusers live in, they very rarely like to leave that environment. On the worst scale of it, think about your Jeffrey Dahmers of the world. He lived in an apartment killing and beheading men for years on end, almost decades, because that had become his sanctuary. As gruesome and nasty and negative and horrendous and murderous as it was, but it was his safe haven. So once you enter that and you're lucky to leave, that's kind of where we are when we're talking about those emotional triggers because now the words are now triggering you. They're not physically abusing us anymore. But the emotional impact of how we interact with them and the things that they say and how they interact, and I remember the issues of my mother uh, giving me a stack of mail, and I gave her a letter back, and I said, you gave me the wrong one that doesn't have my name on it. She snatches it from me. Like, what is the problem? This is your piece of mail. You called and made an entire stink for a 15-minute conversation for me to come and pick the mail up, and I'm here to pick it up, but I stood in the doorway to pick it up. I didn't walk into the house. This was me initially not realizing that I was starting to set boundaries. I didn't want to actually set foot into the house. So it was a problem for her to bring the mail to the door for me. Other than that, if I were to come in and sit down and have some random, unnecessary conversation about something that doesn't matter, as long as I'm sitting there placating her feelings for 15 minutes, she was okay. But when I let her know, no, I don't want to come in, I'll meet you at the door with the mail and I'll pick it up. It became an issue for her because she couldn't control me. Well, come into the house and pick it up. Or the mail is on the kitchen table, the door is open, come in and pick it up. No, I don't want to come into your house. Can you give it to me at the door? because she couldn't control it, then that was a trigger for her, right? So when you start to set those boundaries, it's a whole new world for them because they don't now. You're setting, you're using things in your toolkit, so you can kind of put some distance between you and them, and they don't know how to deal with it because they don't have anything to combat that with you on. All they know is negativity. Well, I have, so when you say you're your mother's house physically sick, that's exactly what was happening to you. Your body is telling you that this person and their energy and their words are not healthy for you. That's exactly what your body was trying to tell you. 
Well, I have a question. Um, I have a lot of people that, you know, tell me they're having a really hard time because, you know, like around the holidays especially and other things, people say, well, you know, uh, you want to family or, you know, um, you know, um, what did your mom do or this or that? And they have a really hard time answering the questions, um, especially when they're not family. And I was wondering if you could comment on that, if you get any. You kind of went in and out a little bit. It, it was The question about your mother was what? Okay, I'm having problems with my phone or the static on somebody's line. Um, but I said some people tell me that they're, um, they have friends or people on Facebook or whatever that are okay. you know, have a nice time with your family for the holidays or, you know, are you going to go see your mom or this or that? They made a decision not to see them. And it's really emotional for them to answer. Uh, they, they feel kind of cast when they say, I don't see them. So they're feeling attacked by their friends when yeah. they say that, no, they don't want to see their parents on the holidays? Yeah. Yes. Or something to that set? Right. Well, first of all, I'm not going to just attack the friends, but friend, real friends should support your decision. Um, that could also be the reason that you may be talking to people who themselves are victims of survival and have not spoken their truth. So they're still in that cycle of shame and of silence. They've been shamed into speaking the truth. They've been threatened uh-huh. into silence. They think that's just normal. Regardless of my parents abusing them, I still owe them some loyalty to show up and exchange Christmas presents. I mean, I went through that cycle early on. And again, it was till I physically moved away that I thought, well, okay, you know what? I have my own place here. I can celebrate Christmas on my own. I don't have to call them on a holiday. I don't have to call them on Mother's Day. I don't have to send a card. I don't have to do anything. That doesn't mean I don't have a relationship with them. They're a parent, and they gave birth to me. But I'm an adult now, and how I live my life is up to me. And I choose not to engage with people who have abused me. So it could be that. It could be the fact that maybe you haven't shared your story of abuse with those friends, and so therefore they don't know or understand why you don't want to visit or engage with that parent or mother or whatever on the holidays. Because another tool that the abuser uses is manipulation. And this goes back to the person now. There's hardly any abuser out there that will not have some type of narcissistic trait. But that doesn't mean that all narcissistic people are abusers. Um, That's information that I picked up from a Dr. Romani. And uh, she has a great YouTube channel. Uh, she's a clinical licensed clinical psychologist, um, and uh, she used to be featured a lot on the Red Table Talk on uh, Jada Pinkett Show on uh, YouTube Watch. But she made a great point that narcissists will always have, don't necessarily abuse, but all abusers have narcissistic traits. So that's the one thing that the mother does now because she can't physically abuse you, but she still has to control you. 
so she makes this whole song and dance of holiday time that you're supposed to see your mother or supposed to visit your mother or call your mother. Just because it's a holiday makes the fact that you hit me or molested me or abused me or neglected me, does that make that go away? No, it doesn't. The best present you can ever give me for Christmas is to sit down and talk to me about the abuse that you put me through. Those are boundaries that I start to set with people. Those are boundaries I had to start to set with people once they realized that they were being cut out of my life, that I didn't call them for years on end. They didn't know where I lived for years on end. They would make it a point to gossip to other people in the family that I stayed connected with to try to find out where I was because they didn't know. If I didn't directly tell them, they didn't know. And that was because you're being cut out of my life. I'm setting boundaries. So if you want to have and engage with me in a conversation on a holiday or a birthday, what you need to do is to make sure that the conversation we're going to have is going to start off about the abuse that you put me through. If you are not going to be willing to start that conversation with me, then come hell or high water, it's got to be a medical or death-defying issue in order for me to engage in a phone conversation, let alone to be physically in your presence. Other than that, good, health, and happy, whatever, I don't wish death on anyone, but everyone has to die. And either you will die first or you will talk to me about the truth first. One or the other will happen. Other than that, I'm not concerned with what happens to you. I'm not concerned about your feelings when you are the person that abused me. So that means that we have now got to start thinking about the social environment that we've engaged ourselves in because before you know it, these so-called friends who are doing these traditional things of still making a big deal for them out of holidays and things of that nature, They don't know how to support you when you say, no, I don't want to do the same things that you're doing around the holiday, like call or engage with an abusive mother. And then the card becomes where they're getting older, you need to talk with them. Well, everyone has to get older. That still does not negate the fact that you abused me. And you're not doing anything to help me heal from the abuse, which ultimately helps them heal from their own abuse. So we have to, I think that was one thing we talked about on my last time on the show, that we've got to start now looking at our own adult social circles because we may have unwittingly allowed people in that I call peepers. They're really not there to support you 100% and no judgment, but they just kind of want to peep in and out and get a little bit of a view of what your life is like and not really do anything to support you with where you are because they just don't have the tools. Maybe they didn't grow up as an abused kid, so they have no idea what your feelings are and how you're still coping with them. All they know is, well, let's just go have an Easter parade or it's Christmas time, let's hang up the tree, or it's my mother's birthday, I'm going to bake her a cake. That They just do the same old regular, quote-unquote, normative things. But Christmas could be a trigger for you because you could have woken up and had a great Christmas that morning, and by the end of the day, your father is two sheets to the wind, and he's knocking everyone around the house because now he's complaining about the bills he's got to pay because he had to buy all these damn Christmas presents for everybody. That's what triggers me about a Christmas with a so-called father or a mother. That's what triggers me about Christmas. 
been given all these things and then being told how much of a dumbass kid or a worrisome kid or how much trouble it was going to be that he's got to work overtime to make all these extra money to take up all these bills that they spent all this extra money on Christmas. That's what Christmas was like in my house. So pardon me for not wanting to go around these same people that know they're not doing those same abusive things now, but they don't know accountability either. They'd rather just right. be silent about right. it, sweep things under the rug, pretend like things didn't happen, and to hell with you and your feelings. As long as you don't do anything to expose them, then the narcissist in them can continue to live and run free reign throughout the world and cause havoc to anyone else that they come in contact with. Right. So we got to start bringing up our social circles, even as adults. And sometimes you just have to look at other people and say, okay, I've got to compartmentalize and put you in this box or that box, but you're not able to really be a friend to me in this area where I need a friend. So you and I now, I'm going to have to set boundaries between you and I because they just don't know sometimes. Or, Or unwittingly, they do know and they don't care. That's the worst part of it. They think you're just yeah. supposed to do these yeah. normative human constructs anyway, regardless of the fact that someone abused you. And that is the stupidest right. thing in the world, the world that I've ever heard of. It is completely detrimental to your healing. Yeah. So um, you've used the word uh, narcissist before. Not everybody knows that word. Could you give a quick uh, explanation on that in case somebody doesn't know what that word means? I know it's I want to be more direct about it. So uh-huh. let me pull it up. I normally go to things such as um, like the Mayo Clinic um, mm-hmm. and things of that nature. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, so technically speaking, there is a medical journal that most disorders and diseases are listed in that medical professionals will read through, and it's a medical diagnostic journal, if I'm not mistaken. So it's the things that they pull all their definitions from when it comes to naming disorders and diseases, new, present, old, or anything that's on set. So, all right, Mayo Clinic says that... um, in totality, it is called the Narcissistic Personality Disorder. And the general definition of that is <clears throat> a disorder in which a person has an inflated sense of self-importance. Narcissistic Personality Disorder is found more commonly in men. The cause is unknown but likely involves a combination of genetic and environmental factors. Um, A little bit of further scrolling. Now you want to put that into day-to-day terms. And we're looking at signs of what narcissistic means, okay? When people have this sense of I am important. Everything is all about me. Nothing in the world happens if it's not about me. And the me part means that they have got to be put on a pedestal, for lack of a better word. And I've seen the disorder up close and personal. Um, 
and my father highly narcissistic. I have a cousin highly narcissistic. And speaking with them about these terms and seeing that relating it to the behavior as I've gotten older and grown through life and in a professional sense, they were actually, the look on their face was the exact same expression that they both gave me when I initially called it out because they were both um, active military at one point and then they were both uh, dismissed from the military for different instances but leading to behavior disorders that they displayed negatively while they were in the military. So when I called them out on it and asked them to explain um, why certain things happen or maybe this is what can help me understand them better or we have a talk and communicate about this, it was such a hidden thing with them and a secret that there's no way in hell that they thought that I could possibly know what their medical history or the discharge history could be with the United States military, right? But behavior has nothing to do with that. It's the same behavior. You will have the same traits in every person, and that's the thing that I've been able to study over the years with behavior therapy is it doesn't matter the person, place, or thing. You're looking at behavior, and the behavior is taught and it's learned. So, uh, but like it says, it shows up much more um commonly in men than it does women. All right, so nine things you want to look at for a person dealing with NPD or narcissistic personality disorder. Number one, there's a sense of self-importance. Two, they have a preoccupation with power, beauty, or success. And again, same thing within my father and this one cousin of mine. Uh, Always conversations on their job, their status, how much money they were making, uh, what they were buying kids for presents, things of that nature. And there's a a cousin and I are two years apart in age. He's younger than me. So my father is 25 years older than me, so I put him 27 years older than my cousin. So, But seeing that 25-plus age gap between the two of them, but seeing the exact same behavior, and they lived in totally different states, at totally different years that I've been able to sit back and just kind of observe the behavior, right? But they were both overly preoccupied. Every day had to be a conversation about what they did at work and how they had to save the day at work and and how much money they're making and I'm planning this trip and it's going to cost me this much money. And that was just the fuel that they ran on every day. It was never a conversation or could have a conversation about the sun is out today. How blessed are we to see that? It's another beautiful day with beautiful weather. It was never anything that was not about putting them on the pedestal, right? Uh, they felt a sense of entitlement. Um, if you didn't agree with them on everything that they spoke about, if you didn't want to do the things that they wanted to do, if you didn't want to go to places that they wanted to go, um, it was a combative kind of thing there because they felt entitled to just, again, all attention was on them to do everything that they needed to do, what they they wanted to do. And what you wanted to do was of little to no consequence. They can be for, they can only be around people who are important or who make them feel important or special. And, again, this is people, um, a word that I found years ago called sycophants. And these are people that you keep around you solely for the purpose of being your yes man 
or they have to put you on the pedestal or they're constantly praising you or they're constantly making you feel like you're the most important person in the room. If you're not doing that, then they don't know how to engage with you. They they don't know how to deal with you because you're not speaking about them. When you begin to speak about yourself and the things that are important to you, then the conversation again, they distract and deflect it back around to them. Um, five, they are interpersonally exploitive for their own gain. So um, be careful around these types because they will take any small thing that they've learned about you or they feel is a flaw or something that's not valued in you, and they will exploit it. They will nitpick it. They will gossip about it. They will talk about about you behind your back about it. But at the same time, they feel the need to be the savior. Well, I know why you're going through this, or I know why that's happened to you. Again, you've got to come to them and put them on the table and make them feel like they're there to save the day. Uh, six, they are excessively arrogant, which is true. Seven, they lack any empathy. Um, they don't know how to recognize your feelings as your own feelings. Part of this is scientifically a problem because of where a part of the brain is that excretes those emotions and the the, uh, triggering effects of those emotions is called the amygdala, very small fraction of the brain of where the conscious lies. And in that consciousness becomes empathy. So they physically or environmentally have learned to become um, unempathetic. In the instance, I'll go back to the Jeffrey Dahmers. In the instance, it's biological or it's environmental. That's the difference between you being a psychopath and a sociopath. Psychopath means that it happened at birth. Something in the amygdala is not working or it's just not there. It didn't develop. In the instance that you are socially tied to your narcissism, it means that you have been around other people behaving in a narcissistic manner, and you learn to do those same things. But you have enough of growth and development of the amygdala that if you put yourself in a different learning environment, you can learn to do things in a healthier way. So you can change your lack of empathy to becoming a more empathetic person. Uh, eight means you must be admired, again, at all times. It means they have to be put on a pedestal. If someone is not fanning their flames, they are not happy. They are not satiated. They have got to be admired at all times. Uh, that goes back to the difference of you being the kid that they can control, that you're constantly running around on mommy's apron strings. But when you're different than being nine and 39, so 30 more years later, your mother still needs you to hang on to her apron strings because she doesn't know how not to feel needed. Does that make sense? Even as abusive as it is, she will do yeah. whatever it takes, yeah. even resulting to the abusive, negative, toxic words and behaviors to keep you, in my own mother's sense, to keep me in a negative conversation with her at all times because speaking on something positive in trying to heal is something she just does not know how to do. So it's got to be a constant argument because that's the only way she feels the need to keep me in communication with her. 
Because if I know he's arguing with me, I Shaman Blaine comes in there, yeah. too. There's a lot yeah. of shaming and blaming. But she keeps you in an argument with her. She feels you're going to argue that with her. That's the only type of communication that she knows. So I've learned for me the best thing in that toolkit is silence. I will silence you by not talking to you. And when I mean no talking, I mean years on end, three, four, five years. I've stretched it out over this past time because I didn't even speak with them over COVID. So it was close to five years, only because I had a medical issue earlier this year that I had to deal with, that I had to call them and get some information on. Other than that, no engagement. It was four years and close to 10 months before I placed that phone call. And I, I have not felt a better sense of relief in my life, knowing that it's been that long. But that's just what it is. And the last point you're looking at is Right. Sorry. No, I didn't. didn't Same thing. Same behavior, same negativity, same toxic. So I kept it very short and very simple. And if you're not going to be here for me and support me, even in the midst of me telling you that I have a medical issue going on, there's nothing that came out of their mouth regarding, oh, my God, my daughter's sick, my this, that, blah, blah, blah. It was just, why are you bothering me? Why are you this? So it became that, again, about them. So... To hell with you and hell with everything else. I've got to think about myself, you know. All right, so the last point here is they are envious of others or believe that others are envious of them. And then, again, they don't know how to change their life for the better or to do things positive. So what happens is that enviousness and that jealousy starts to show up. And then that also becomes another reason that they become argumentative and nasty and toxic and things of that nature to keep you in any type of engagement with them. Because, again, they know no other way in or out of their own behavior. And them being a bad, not narcissistic, toxic, negative person, which in some cases turned into them being the abuser, had absolutely nothing to do with you. Someone taught them that behavior, or unfortunately, medically, they have a medical issue that needs to be addressed by medical professionals. And again, that had nothing to do with you either. So I spent a little less time out of my day in worrying about healing people who hurt me, because as long as they are still in a place of hurt, they don't have the tools to help me heal. So it took me years to start to set that boundary and start to realize that the healing and the help that I was seeking lay within myself. It will never come at the hands of the people that hurt me until they make the decision to admit and acknowledge what they've done. And that even starts with admitting and acknowledging what has happened to them in the first place to make them be the abusers that they are or were, if that makes any sense. So my healing healing and helping others' energy is what I put into situations now with a group like NASCA. I don't put that energy into my abusers anymore. I just don't because it's a dead-end, head-butting, killing the dead horse over and over again type of situation. You would never get the the healing or the answers that you need from them until they're ready to do it. And unfortunately, NASCA family, we got to be ready for the situation. Those of us that are 
in my age bracket or older. I know I'm getting older, so that means these abusers of mine are older. They're both in their mid to late 70s. They're going to hit their 80s pretty soon. And the people that they used to turn to and continue to speak negative on me and gossip about me and things of that nature, these people are dying. Their friends are dying. I saw some of their friends dying in their early 40s and 50s. Their uh, sisters and brothers are dying. Their older aunts or uncles have died or are dying. So these people are now facing their own mortality. And if they haven't done it by now, they're not going to do it. You, you may get some type of late in the 11th hour deathbed confession on a half-assed I'm sorry. But how does a I'm sorry because they're afraid of dying or they're laying on the deathbed and they just want you to just give them a okay or whatever the case may be so they can close their eyes and, and face the fear of the inevitable, how does that actually equate for the years of abuse that they put you through? It doesn't. So I don't even allow people to grace enough to say that I'm sorry because I leave that energy for me. I had to apologize to myself and apologize to that young girl within me that I wish I was around at the time that little Monica was being hurt and abused because the Monica in me today is going to fight tooth and nail. Emotionally, yes, I keep my toolkit on hand, but if it came to the push comes to shove and we all had that sense, well, I wish they would die. I wish I could kill my mother or father. Everyone has the right to have those feelings. Because you're trying to kill the abuse. You're not actually trying to kill them as a parent. Some of us just don't know the difference and we go over the edge. Or we kill ourselves because you want to kill the effects of what the abuse makes us feel like. And that's a huge problem in suicide these days. But you want the abuse to stop at all costs. And the Monica in me today, the 49-year-old Monica in me today, I would be sitting happily in someone's prison if I had to defend to the death of someone molesting or abusing or hitting or slapping or pushing or kicking a nine-year-old Monica. The 49-year-old Monica in me today just would not have it, and I'm not having it today. So the forgiveness is for me. I had to forgive myself and apologize to myself that I couldn't better protect ourselves because that's a huge weight that we carry because we think the adults we are today are the same adults that we were then. When the reality is we just didn't have the tools to protect ourselves. We didn't have the skills because the people that were supposed to teach us those skills were the very same people that were abusing us. And it's not our fault, guys. The abuse is not our fault, regardless of what they say to you and how they try to make you feel. The abuse had nothing to do with them, us. It had everything to do with them and them not making different decisions to do their parenting better or for whatever reason we got put through the abuse. They made a choice to abuse us. And when I tell people it was a choice, because guess what? They didn't molest everybody. They didn't abuse everybody. They didn't slap everybody. So it was That's a behavior right. that they, they chose to wield that power over the ones that they felt that were most vulnerable. That's where the word predator comes in. So they looked for people who were weak and vulnerable 
And at just some particular point in time in our lives, we just happen to be that target. So I hope that cleared that up on, on what people may be looking at when it comes to um, behaviors or traits in a person who is a narcissist. So, again, understanding that a narcissist doesn't always develop into being a full-on abuser, but an abuser will almost always have narcissistic uh, traits, whether it's been diagnosed or not. Right. Right. Another thing I want us to put into our yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say Another that uh, I did, I did a, a deal for NAMI, National Association for the Mentally Ill, and um, I did thinking with instead of tools in a tool belt, I did jewels in a treasure chest, and it was on self-advocacy. And I had written on all these jewels I made up in the whole cardboard treasure chest and ended up... Um, Talking about how to take care of yourself, like you said, you know, um, I didn't learn how to take care of myself. And as I was parenting my kids, I was really reparenting myself. And they used the word reparenting because I didn't get those skills. I didn't get that information. I got none of that. And I had to learn all that. You know, it was like I was a little infant and had to start all over because I was being abused from an infant, you know. And uh, I've got these uh, affirmation circles that had all these positive affirmations. Yes, put them all over my house and for my kids, and I think I got more out of it than the kids did. There you go. So it's not an age thing. It's a behavior thing. You having to learn a new behavior on how to better take care of yourself. And that's the one thing you got to do. For every negative thing that comes up, you got to do at least two positive things to move forward. I spoke about that on a previous podcast that it's uh, literally, uh, it's a teaching skill that teachers learn, but it's also a life skill. For every one new uh, objective that you're trying to teach a student, it would take them up to um, 400 repetitions for them to learn it to where it becomes instinctive and automatically repetitive. And that is you put it in an environment to where they're just they're just doing a repetition. 400 times to do this, that, and the other. Like 400 times they got to learn to hold a pencil or 400 times they got to learn to write this A or this B or whatever. Uh, it happens a little sooner and a little faster if the brain is in an environment where you are raising those endorphins. So from a teaching environment, years later we learn how to incorporate music, and a more happier, open, friendly environment with students where it was not so much as a lecturing and stern environment like that. And so students were able to retain memory of certain things in as little as 20 repetitions, where in a more stern environment, it would take them up to 400 repetitions. So you're doing the exact same thing. For every one negative thing that comes up as a trigger for you, say two or three other positive things to yourself to counteract that. And once you're doing that on a day-to-day basis, it becomes repetitive. And before you know it, you're seeing and doing and behaving and acting in more positive ways than you are in negative ways. All right. Another thing that I want to bring up is to place triggers, whatever they are, place them in a timeout. 
okay? Only you can control how or if the trauma of past negative experiences still haunt or hurt you. So the time out for me, again, became interactions and even physically laying eyes on my parents. It became putting them in time out for years on end. Months used to work. Then it became, weeks used to work, then it became easier for months. And then, again, living in that same city or engaging with them, going around a family function or a barbecue or church or something, again, triggering just to see them. So I don't want to be around them. So I will leave the family function early. I will leave the church early, go to a new church or go to a different family function, things of that nature. Placing those things in time out, when I'm realizing that that wasn't doing it enough for me, then it became a years-long process. Guess what? I feel okay by not calling them every year or every two years or every three years or every four years. You know what I mean? Place them, the things, the places, whatever. Put them in time out, and only you can develop what that time out is. But under no circumstances, the trigger may, you've identified the trigger and you know what it is. Just in having a, a conversation with my parents longer than five to ten solid minutes about just a general, I have to talk about some serious da-da-da-da-da. Anything longer than that is going to become a problem. So I have to limit it to a 10-minute conversation about every four to five years now, literally. If I get information from some other family member, I cut it off. I don't want to hear it. I don't need to hear it. They're not deathly ill, gravely ill, in the hospital facing death. I don't need to hear it. It has nothing to do with me. So you've got to figure out what the trigger is, the person, the place, or the thing, and then you've got to put it in time out. And only you can do that. And when you take it out of timeout, you take it out of timeout in the hopes that it's going to have a better outcome. If it doesn't, back in timeout that they go. You know, it sounds maybe kind of juvenile that something you may do with your kids or something when you're disciplining your kids. But, again, we're talking about behaviors here. We're talking about how you can better manage your life here in order that you can heal and continue to grow in a positive way as an adult. And as long as you continue to let people in places trigger you and you continue to have the same responses when you are triggered, you yourself are going to be detrimental to your own healing. So we have to be really careful about that. Can I interject uh, I, I to I want to turn up Victoria? Oh, go ahead. Thank you. I'm sorry. I, I was uh, not able to speak a little earlier, but, um, you know, I heard some of what you said, um, and I cannot agree with you anymore. Uh, I know it may sound a little juvenile, but it's really called setting boundaries and understanding what your triggers are and setting the standards for respect. And uh, sometimes that's just what you have to do. You have to say to yourself, look, either I'm going to continue to accept this feeling of uh, being abused or being disrespected, or I'm going to set the norm up. Let me set the tone. This is what I expect. This is what I need. And for us to be in relationship, this is how it's going to have to go with mutual respect or else there's just not going to be an existing type of communication in any shape, form, 
or fashion. And that's all it is. I don't think it's juvenile. I think it's just unfortunately with people, you have to deal with them. One plus one equals two. Even if it sounds juvenile, one, two, three, these are the steps to deal with me. And I agree with you. And I'm Dr. Nancy. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Dr. Nancy. Um, That was an awesome point there. It's about setting boundaries. And I will tell you, even for me, once I even started to change my own verbiage with abusers, again, that was another thing that I could put into my toolkit, something that they weren't used to hearing, certain verbiage from me. The word respect and disrespect, it was thrown around a lot in my house. So it was when I was growing up. So it meant a lot of different things to different people. So when I tell people that you raising your voice at me is disrespectful, the first thing they're going to say is when they're used to doing that behavior because it's all about them, I'm not disrespecting you. So guess what? I take the power away from them even owning that word. I tell them you are devaluing me, you are dishonoring me. You do not give me the same responses that I give you. I am not raising my voice at you. I've asked you to not raise your voice at me. So do not demean me. Don't degrade me. Don't devalue me. Don't dishonor me. They're not used to hearing those type words. So now they're actually going to take a second and shut up with the yelling that they're doing because they're having to figure out what these words actually mean. And so... You can, yeah. you can use that as a very subtle way of chipping away at their armor. They're used to saying, I'm not disrespecting you, and will continue to scream when they're saying, I'm not disrespecting you. So you change the dial a little bit, dial it back, and what disrespect actually means to you. It means that you don't value me enough to speak to me in the same manner that I'm speaking to you. It means you're demeaning me, which means that I'm not meaningful to you in the same way you are meaningful to me. You know what I mean? Take away their tools. Take away the things that they are doing, and that's a little psychological warfare I learned by reading parts of The Art of War. So you can use your strengths for how we are growing and how we are moving in life uh, with my parents themselves, highly respected people on their jobs. They went through their jobs and they did their jobs and they worked for 30 years and they did their retirements and did what they were supposed to do. My parents came from the baby boomer generation where you could make your way through life without having much of an education outside of high school. Um, And both of them had, I would say, a little bit of vocational training. My father was an electrician. My mother was a dietitian. And they could do those job skills very well but having any other type of uh, intellectual or academic, anything in their background, they just didn't have it. So once I moved into my adult life and I began um, pursuing teaching professionally and it began to change my verbiage because I was challenged to do that as a professional. So once I can look and see that, oh, I can actually take these words and things, now this makes sense to me on what their behavior is because this is the definition of what it is. I see them doing it all the time. So now I can speak to them. You're a narcissistic person. You have narcissistic personality disorder. Or asking my cousin and my father, at what point in time in the military were you diagnosed with personality disorder? 
or this trait or that trait because you were dishonorably discharged for a medical reason. What was the reason? My sister was also discharged for borderline personality disorder. She left the military dishonorably discharged and never, to my knowledge, 20-something-odd years later, followed up maybe 25 years, if I'm gauging my oldest nephew's age right, never followed up with medical help after leaving the military. She became a, um, I would say, slightly functioning alcoholic, the same as my father was, um, but she highly narcissistic highly entitled and spoiled. And a lot of people just shoved that off as her being a quote-unquote baby of the family. Whatever she wanted, whatever she needed, she got. And But it was, um, I would also say a little bit of manic depressive disorder was thrown in there with her because she would go through these spells of spending sprees, like my parents having a 40th anniversary, and she would just call me with some random request of helping to spend $5,000 on a party for them because they're married at 40 years. And you've got young kids at home. I've got other bills to pay. I've got other things to do. There's pretty, I'm pretty sure there's something else I can do with my $5,000 besides spending it on people who abused me. So it was a conversation that she just couldn't have because we're not talking about that. We're not going to deal with that. Then it became just an argument because she couldn't get her way. You understand what I'm saying? So you got to set those boundaries. So, again, no, we're not going to have conversations where you're going to dishonor or devalue me. Do you want to sit down and have a conversation about why you're spending money excessively? Because in the next month or so, you're going to need that money for some other more important reason versus spending it on a needless party and DJ and food and renting out some event space and glorifying people that we both lived in the same house with that both abused us and you expect me to show up at this party and to get on a podium in front of a microphone in front of a lot of people and not tell the truth. So don't ask me for the $5,000. And I don't care how much of a temper tantrum you throw about it, it's not going to happen. So you've got to set those boundaries because if you don't, again, her throwing the temper tantrum was her way of getting her way and doing things the way she wanted to do. So, um, yeah, we, we, we've got to be able to, to – that's the one thing I've learned to do is to use my professional background as a way to help me fight um, with abusers in any form or fashion that I've had to do it over the years is I will take out my my terminology and I will load – a, a weapon, I will load that as my weapon, and I will hit them with those professional terms, left, right, up, and down, and they have absolutely no recourse to the point that even the argument that they want to start doesn't work. They just rather back out of the conversation with me at all because they see that they can't win because they don't have the tools to fight back when it comes to doing that. So, yeah, uh, try that because if it's a way that you're going to set boundaries, do that. I would take a little more, um, take away those common words that they're very used to using in a situation with you because then it becomes a tit for tat. So use a different word um, in place of the disrespect, if we're going back to that, and see how they respond to that. Most of the time, they're going to only want to just 
try to quickly Google or go look up and find out what that word is. So when the same type of situation rolls around again, they think that they can now use that word, dishonor, devalue you again, use it against you. And all that means is you pull out another word out of your arsenal and you chop them down at the knees by doing that. Other than that, set the boundaries that we don't speak. And this is a consequence of you not behaving in a manner that best suits us both. But if you don't do things the way that are best suited for me, then the consequence is if you and I don't speak at all for however long. And that's ultimately what I had to start doing for me. And it wasn't just a few minutes. It wasn't a few weeks. It's years on end. And it's the same for my parents. It's the same for my younger sister. It's the same for my brother. My brother and I here and there will speak a little bit about the things that we need to speak about that are imperative because he's my older brother, but he also endured the same physical abuse that I did. Unfortunately, he's the same brother that molested me, but he's also my only memory of certain things that happened by him being three years older than me that I don't remember that happened as a form of the abuse from my our parents. So I had to get to a point where I had to forgive myself enough about the molestation that happened between us and get enough of acknowledgement from him about it. A while back I did that we're able to speak now without me having any type of anger or resentment about him. But I still make sure that there's some still clear boundary lines that we don't revert back into that old tit-for-tat, nitpicking type of relationship that we had when we were kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted to mention, too, that I was in the uh, psychiatric ward, and they told me I'd start setting boundaries. And uh, they said, do you know what boundaries are? And I started saying that I thought boundaries were, and they go, no, those are walls. <laughs> right. <laughs> I didn't know the difference. And I'm like, well, what's a boundary? You know, and it's like taking care of yourself and... So anyway, I started learning how to set boundaries and uh, went back to my grandparents. And they're like, what's the matter with you? Why are you acting like this? I said, because I'm learning how to set boundaries. They said, well, we don't like this new you. <laughs> and that's literally the truth. You know, they were being like honest as hell. I, we don't like this, you know. And uh, I was also told that, uh, you know, when I'm but that, that was also a form of them showing you their narcissism, that they were making your behavior all about them. They were confused. They were upset that they didn't know why your behavior was changing because it didn't best suit them. So, again, they yeah. honestly told you, I don't like it because it means that they had to learn to interact with you on a different level. Again, if you yeah. have new behavior. Exactly, and they didn't know how to do that, so they honestly told you, we don't like it. We don't like that they didn't tell you the extent of it. They didn't like the fact that they couldn't control you anymore. They didn't like the fact that they couldn't manipulate you anymore. All they knew is just they didn't like it. Right, and so, you know, I learned how just keep repeating, you know, just just let them babble on and then just keep repeating over and over what the point was I was trying to get across to them. No matter what they did, no matter how they acted, no matter how they tried to get off the subject, because they always would try, 
you know, and yep. it was don't like, no, I'm trying to tell you that. Don't let them distract. Don't yeah. let them distract. They will do anything yeah. and everything they possibly can. Again, mm-hmm. in the instance of my mother, she's an argument starter. She would do, I, yeah. when I can cross the wall and get the words in or get the sentence out to my father, he at least becomes mute. He will listen. He won't admit and he won't acknowledge anything, but he at least wow. takes some of it in. My mother doesn't do that. Yeah. It just automatically becomes defensive and deflective and distracting, and yeah. she starts to argue, and she starts screaming, and she starts yelling, anything to shut me up, to keep her yeah. from hearing yeah. what I have to say about her and her behavior. So like I said earlier, the guilt and shame, that's when the guilt and shame came out real heavy, heavy and hard, you know, the guilt and shame. Um, you know, yeah. why are you doing this to us? Um, you know, all, all, like you said, all about them, you know, and matter of fact, with a lot of my friends, I didn't even have now, to say that. See, you're free now means you're hurting them. You understand? It goes, yeah. still goes yeah. back to, you yeah. understand what I'm saying about them being narcissists. Yeah. They could be highly narcissistic and not abuse you, but the abusers will most always be narcissistic. Well, in your case, you made a point earlier. Sorry, ma'am, I'm gonna may make... I please say something? Okay. I want to um, say to uh, Ms. Victoria tonight. Thank you so much for doing such a great job tonight and just going right in. Um, I just want to thank you for covering tonight. Such an honor. I'm so grateful for you. And you did a wonderful job. So everything happened for a reason. Uh, that was the first part for Ms. Victoria. And then for Ms. Monica, I want to know, how can we get a hold of you? I try to find you on Facebook. I'm not able to. Are you on Instagram? How does anyone find you? Go to my social media on Instagram. That page is called The Trauma Queen. Uh, the uh, page is M-S-B-T-H-A Healer. Miss B the Healer. Hashtag The Trauma Queen. Um, and there you'll find different posts and things that I put up, and uh, as well as any notifications when I'm going to be on with NASCO. If you would like to reach out to me directly, you can text me at 678-632-1098. I encourage people to reach out and text me um, any questions or concerns that they may have or if they're interested in setting up any type of um, professional counseling sessions or anything with me. One of the last points is 678-632-1098. All right, thank you. All right, thank you. All right, one last thing I wanted to say uh, with Victoria's point earlier that I was lucky enough to have a a client during my years that I worked as a hairstylist. She was a teacher as well. And we, it came across about the difference in me putting up a boundary versus having up a wall. So she said, yes, a wall is kind of something that can be destructive because if you think you're putting it up high enough to keep other people out from hurting you, guess what? That wall may become so strong and so sturdy and so high, you may not be able to get out of it yourself. So you're imprisoning yourself. So think of a boundary as being a horse in a corral. 
and you just put up these little um, wooden spikes and a little wooden fence all the way around. He can see over the the fence. He can see through it, but he knows when he goes to the fence, he knows to stop. That's the difference in between you having a boundary and a wall. You can still see your way through, right? You may not want them to definitely break the boundary if the behavior hasn't changed. So give them an opportunity to see you on the other side of that boundary and to see something that they still need to engage in because the reality is they want you. They want your companionship. They still are targeting you for whatever reason, positive or negative. All they know is they need to have that old energy from you in their life. But the reality is now the boundary that you set, you get to decide whether you want or need them in your life. And the boundary is you will be more talk, you will talk about the abuse. We will admit the abuse. We will find a way to come to a positive resolve or you don't get to be a part of my life. That's the boundary. Um, so with that being said, that's everything that I have for tonight, and I want to sign off, again, encouraging everyone on your healing journey to engage in any type of self-care or self-love independently for you and only for you. No friends, no families, no kids, no nothing. Go to that movie alone. Go to your bookstore and sit and get a cup of coffee, and I'll flip through all of my gossip magazines. I do that for myself periodically. Um, go get a massage alone. Go take a trip somewhere, quiet overnight trip somewhere alone. I love doing that periodically. I'll do that here in the city, in and around Seattle. Just go and get a hotel room somewhere, maybe they've got a great hot tub there, and I'll just go and get a hotel room for the night, get some great takeout, enjoy the pool and the hot tub, and enjoy just a night out to myself in a nice bathrobe and feet kicked up with a nice glass of wine and some greasy Chinese takeout. It's just time alone to myself. Do what goes shopping, but not addictively, right? I have a pair of boots that I've worn maybe twice since the pandemic, that were $300 boots that I got on sale at Macy's for about 60 bucks. Beautiful, high-top, glittering, over-the-knee boots, and I have absolutely no purpose or place to specifically wear those boots. But glitter makes me happy, and getting $300 boots at 60 bucks was a bargain, and so I bought them, right? So do the things for you that make you happy. That is self-care and self-love. It is not being selfish. I want to mention, too, that, um, like, um, uh, everybody thinks you have to go and spend money to do something for yourself. I go for walks in the woods. I go over to the concerts. Um, you know, just spend, like, you spending a small amount of money and go to, you know, a restaurant and have a coffee and bring a newspaper or bring a book you want to read, you know. And it doesn't have to cost a lot of money um, to make a special day for yourself. You know, make your favorite dinner or, or make your favorite meal and just say, this is me, and light some candles and set the table night. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, going on a big vacation and spending all this money. You know, I mean, we could do small things every day for ourselves, you know, just to say one thing every day for me. 
and it doesn't have to cost a fortune, you know. Exactly. Um, and then we set those things up for ourselves. We define that for yeah. ourselves. So absolutely, That's absolutely. I have days I have absolutely nowhere to go. I'll get up, I'll fix my hair nice and put on a nice, big, huge, beautiful face of makeup and mm-hmm. sit and watch all my gossip shows on TV yeah. because I want right. to. You know what I mean? That costs me no money. But the fact that yeah. I can look in that mirror yeah. and that beautiful made up makeup face and that beautiful hair that I got all beat down, honey, I look good. I feel good. So to look in that mirror, even without all of that, get up in the morning and tell yourself in the mirror, Monica, I love you. Get up in the morning before yeah. I get out of bed. I yeah. stretch and I hug myself to make sure that I'm feeling good. I love myself. Monica, yep. I love you. You have to say those things to yourself. I pat myself on the back when I do something I'm proud of. And uh, um, also, I take uh, one day a week for a mental health day and say, this is just, you know, I've been running all week. This is my mental health day. And don't plan nothing. And I just do that. And let your brain shut off. Again, right. hopefully it's exactly. shut and shut down any of the emotional triggers and yeah. things because it could be why okay, we're ripping and running. We've got 90 seconds left, so I think we got to go to the music. And thank you very much, everybody, uh, our guests and Dr. Nucky coming on last minute. Um, you really jumped in there, and I really appreciate it. So, um, Nancy, jump the way to the music. Let's see, I think I can I stroll through the pictures What I've left behind You want again I'm locked up in memories They all intertwine The memories in In my mind I know tomorrow Cause that dawn will come You will never know What you have done 